Welcome to part three of The Road to LA 1984, our multi-episode retrospective on the 40th anniversary of a seminal moment in a golden era of marathoning. We're telling the behind-the-scenes account of the athletes, the training, and the build-up races. This week, we take you to the land of the rising sun and morning in America. 40 years later, here's the story of the second running boom's prolific marathoning depth on Seconds Flat. This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. He's broken three times. He refuses to give in. He might do it. Look at that guy. Look at Blake Zero. Oh, my gosh. Tom Ratcliffe attacked the first half of Boston 1983, caught up in the perfect racing weather and groupthink of a pack of well-trained amateurs who all believed they were ready to run well. Ratcliffe went through halfway in his first Boston in around 66 minutes. Beyond Heartbreak Hill, Ratcliffe began breaking down. It was a fight to the finish. Eventually, he crossed the line in two hours, 19 minutes, 51 seconds. Tom Ratcliffe's 83 Boston and his marathoning career that peaked with the 214 in 1987 are largely forgotten to history. Those who recognize the name attach it to his son Thomas, a mid-distance runner with the Bowerman Track Club. We rarely celebrate for decades the 83rd place finisher at a major marathon, but that's precisely the importance of Ratcliffe's 1983 Patriots Day run. By sneaking under two hours, 20 minutes, he joined 84 men, most from the United States, who broke that barrier. Was it a freak one-off owed to favorable conditions? Hardly. In 2011, with weather as good or better, Jeffrey Mutai ran a course record, but only 22 men broke 220. Four were American. This year, Ratcliffe's time would have earned 28th place on the 40th anniversary of Boston 83. The times at the front of the pack 40 years ago still look remarkably competitive as well. Greg Meyer's 2.09 and Alberto Salazar's and Dick Beardsley's sub-2.09 marks the previous year beat the top American in 2023. Plus, all three outpace Elliot Kipchoge, the sixth-place finisher this year and greatest marathoner of all time. While unfair to compare results solely based on time without considering how the competition unfolded, only 12 Boston winners since 1983 ran times as fast or faster than Meyer, Salazar, or Beardsley. Meyer's win was the last at Boston by an American man until 2014. Gaps between American victories weren't new, but had never spanned three-plus decades. Americans won all except two Boston marathons between 1975 and 1983, with native or transplant New Englanders responsible for each of those crowns. No one in 1983 could have expected such a lengthy drought following Greg Myers' 209. The 84 and 85 Boston fields were understandably watered down. The calendar proximity of Boston 84 and the Los Angeles Summer Games eliminated many of the top runners from doubling back. In 1985, several other major races increased their prize purses, while Boston remained stingy. 
sticking with its historic amateur roots. Then two of the greatest international marathoners ever won Boston 1986 and 1987, Rob DiCostella and Toshihiko Seiko. By that point, the sun was setting on America's distance running boom. In late 1986, Kenny Moore asked, where have all our milers gone? In a Sports Illustrated piece lamenting America's mid-distance malaise. He could have written the same article a decade later and wondered, where have all our marathoners gone? At Seoul 1988, Barcelona 92, Atlanta 96, and Sydney 2000, American men fell woefully short of medal contention. Juxtaposing the two distances, in that period, only Ken Martin ran a marathon fast enough to join Greg Meyer on the sub-four-mile, sub-210 marathon list. No American cracked both 4 and 209 until Galen Rupp. American excellence during the Reagan years and near total disappearance from the global marathon stage by the Clinton era begs the question, what changed? Myriad exercise and health-related reasons spurred the running booms of the 70s and 80s. But several more conspicuous connections might explain the boom at the highest level of competition. Technology, both in its presence and absence, plays a role. Beginning in the 1960s, the major television networks began broadcasting Olympic coverage. The broadcast rights fees are far higher now, but as a market share, TV ratings have dipped significantly in recent years. In the early running boom years, amid far fewer viewing options, the Olympics were truly must-see TV. As preps, Greg Meyer and many of his future greater Boston Track Club teammates watched Frank Shorter win gold at Munich 72. They believed they could follow in the footsteps of a gold medal marathoner of similar background, location, and pedigree. Star Olympians of the era like Shorter and swimmer Mark Spitz were household names. The technological revolution in the decades since LA 84 likely has contributed to plateauing American marathon depth. The advent of computer gaming systems, internet, fad diets, and social media created a more sedentary, screen-addicted society far beyond the 1960s television fear of the boob tube yielding a generation of bumbling stooges. Time on feet and sporting activity during formative years builds a foundation for coordination, strength, and stamina in our athletic primes. In fact, the cultural definition of the word athletic itself has changed since the running boom. Today, athleticism invokes visions of cat-quick, slam-dunking professional basketball players. In previous generations, it suggested an array of skills and abilities, balance, power, craftiness, endurance, that came with excellence across multiple sporting disciplines. American tendency toward youth sport specialization compounds the negative impacts of a less active culture, increasing injury risk and burnout. Meanwhile, the rise in popularity of soccer among U.S. youth has pulled a talented crop of potential runners away from track and field. Only a small fraction of American kids participated in organized soccer programs 50 years ago. Then in the late 70s, Pelé and Franz Beckenbauer came to the New York Cosmos of the North American Soccer League, filling stadiums across the continent. And four years after the 84 L.A. Summer Games, FIFA, global soccer's governing body, awarded the World Cup to the United States. In 1994, the eyes of the sporting world were once again on Southern California, before over 94,000 fans 
Brazil edged Italy 3-2 on penalty kicks at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. The running boom had given way to the soccer boom. All of these factors made shallower the potential pool of world-class distance runners. Simultaneously, fissures within the elite distance running community neutered the power of group training. In many instances, brands took the place of once mighty clubs like Greater Boston in organizing training groups and reduced the ability of Americans under different shoe sponsorships to train together freely. Moreover, training at the highest level drifted toward the results of university physiology lab experiments. Set intervals targeting specific energy systems and improving single variables like VO2 max gain traction. While some measurables improved, we eschewed the immeasurables of rhythm and flow and the artistry and experience our greatest coaches had always exhibited. Simultaneously, athlete development in the United States struggled under the weight of being the only system in the world inextricably linking academics and athletics. North Central College's Al Carius, mentor to scores of individual and team national champions, wrote succinctly, we focus rather on education through the physical, on development of character along with the science, which leads to self-growth and self-mastery. This Jeffersonian ideal encouraged balanced growth in the amateur era. However, we've failed many runners whose coaches began walking a high-stakes tightrope of producing points at cross-country, indoor track, and outdoor track meets while considering an athlete's long-term best interests. Too often, the present season won out. Even the most altruistic coaches risked not putting food on the table if they failed at championship events. In his SI piece bemoaning the demise of American milers, Kenny Moore blamed burnout as a result of the U.S. system. The quest for points and another uniquely American quality, believing more and harder work are better than wise work, almost certainly ended distance running careers in high school and college before marathoning entered the picture. Whatever the biggest contributors to the United States rise then fade from the top of the global marathon hierarchy, the result was clear. Fewer high-level athletes training with dogged determination. Benoit, Meyer, Rogers, Salazar, the best are outliers. Survivors in a sport that often leaves its highest potential prodigies broken by the workload. A perfect storm hit the marathon world. While more and more American adults took on the challenge of covering 26.2 miles, increasingly they did so recreationally. Fewer endeavored to run under two hours, 20 minutes, like Tom Ratcliffe at Boston, 1983. In periodic flashes, our marathoners have returned to the apex. We'll consider those moments more in future episodes of our Road to LA series. And American women are faster than ever. Shalane Flanagan and Des Linden own recent major marathon victories. Kira D'Amato and Emily Sisson both broke the U.S. record in 2022. Also in 2022, Kenny Moore, the SI writer, two-time Olympic marathoner and former Oregon star, passed at age 78. Fortunately, he lived long enough to see the return of the American miler. Matt Centrowitz took Olympic gold at Rio in 2016. And now, after a dry patch the size of the Dust Bowl, U.S. schoolboys are cracking the four-minute mile barrier with never-before-seen frequency. When Jim Ryan broke four minutes five times as a high school junior and senior in the 60s and claimed the world record a year later, it heralded a new era in scholastic track and field. 
Tim Danielson followed with the 359. In 1967, the great Marty LaCory joined the club. We waited for the next prodigy, and we waited and waited. Alan Webb was next, breaking Ryan's mark in 2001. Then we waited again. The wait is over. In the past calendar year, eight American prep milers have gone sub four a combined 12 times. Last week at the Festival of Miles, four high school runners ran between 357 and 359, a new U.S. record for scholastic sub four performances in a single race. The question will be if our teenage mile excellence translates to top level marathoning down the road. The factors most commonly credited for the 1,609 meter renaissance, advanced shoe technology, consolidated training wisdom, and in my opinion, the most important, the expectation of excellence stemming from collectively raising the bar, all convey to 26.2 miles as well. Yet only three American men have run faster than two hours, 10 minutes for the marathon distance in the first half of 2023. We matched that number at Boston alone 40 years ago. Meanwhile, the best in another country with similar distance running heritage and a much smaller population rip world-class times on a weekly basis. Resurrecting America's marathon golden age might require looking across the globe and learning from Japanese running culture, past and present. Japan's 2023 Grand Marathon Championships will host one of the most prolific marathon fields in world history. The invite-only field qualifies through time and placement standards with the top two claiming spots in the 2024 Paris Olympics. 67 men made the cut for the Grand Championships. 65 of them have run under two hours, 10 minutes. 29 sub-230 women will share the course. October's race will look like Boston 1983 on steroids. For all the marathon history of Americans, Australians, and East Africans, no nation shares a deeper cultural connection with distance running than the Japanese. It's a society that basks in the loneliness of the long-distance runner and embraces the sometimes torturous monotony of ultra-high mileage training. The Way of the Runner author Adharanan Finn calls Japanese running culture obsessive, in turn creating a unique and remarkable depth of running talent. After feudal reunification of Japan four centuries ago, ruling elites relied on couriers carrying messages between the major cities of Kyoto and Edo, now Tokyo. Merging the spirit of Pheidippides and the Pony Express, the runners passed missives at exchange stations, covering more than 300 total miles. Today, a bullet train traverses this same distance in two hours. In 1917, Japanese newspapers celebrated the 50th anniversary of Tokyo's installment as national capital by recreating the courier's journey in a three-day multi-stage relay race. The Ekiden was born. Now a cultural phenomenon, Ekiden races feature relays across various lengths, such as the seminal Hakoni Ekiden at the New Year. Broadcast live nationwide for two days, Hakoni's competition level compares favorably with our NCAA Division I championships in track and field and cross country. Ekiden relays epitomize the Japanese cultural value of WA, a group harmony that elevates team success, commitment, and industriousness. But no distance captivates the Japanese like the marathon. Its stars are pop icons, and the biggest races draw television audiences on par with the Super Bowl or the Seinfeld series finale. 
After the Second World War, Japan's Fukuoka Marathon was established. Finn writes that post-war races were seen as a way of bringing people together and boosting morale and community spirit after the terrible events of the war. Since 1947, Fukuoka has been an international marathoning destination paralleled only by Boston. National, continental, and world records have fallen at the invitation-only event. Shorter, Rogers, Di Castella, Gebra Selassie, Wanjiru. Men so deeply intertwined with the history of the sport as to be recognized solely by a surname traveled from every corner of the globe to cement their legacies on the streets of Fukuoka. No one represented Japan better at its crown jewel marathon than Tashihiko Seiko. In summer 1983, Seiko diligently prepped for his fourth Fukuoka victory. He won there in 78, 79, and 80 took Boston 81, where he suffered a knee injury that set him back for nearly two years, had just run a then personal best 208.38 at Tokyo 1983, and owned world records for 25K and 30K. He personified Japanese training discipline, famously declaring, the marathon is my only girlfriend. I give her everything I have. The New York Times went further, noting the marathon stoic's hawk-like features, bristling crew cut, and disposition to utter as few words as possible. His training methods provide a lens through which we can better understand Japanese marathoning prowess then and now. Coached by aging sage Kiyoshi Nakamura, Seiko ran over 40 kilometers per day at his peak of preparation for LA 84. Nakamura believes Seiko physically inferior to his Western competitors. As such, the mileage provided a base of strength that Nakamura sharpened with spiritual teachings, weight training, clean living, and an unparalleled devotion to the craft. The core of Seiko's sessions, large volumes of easy running, long tempo runs, and long repetitions of 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, and even 5,000 meters. In short, Seiko did heaps of zone one and zone two sessions before those terms even existed, and marathon-specific long sessions like Elliot Kipchoge does today. Seiko's training, like that of modern Japan's elite, reflects the lasting impact of Arthur Lydiard's influence on Japanese running. Lydiard taught the virtues of a large aerobic base, hill training, substantial long runs, and seasonal periodization. His methods produced six gold medals for tiny New Zealand at the 1960 and 1964 Olympics, with prized protege Peter Snell winning both the 800 and 1500 at Tokyo 64. No other man has achieved this feat in the past century. Later, Lydiard established a coaching education connection with the archipelago to his north. Japanese stars in the 60s saw Lydiard's contingent running significantly higher volume and applied a higher mileage approach as well. They saw the Kiwis running every day and made running a lifestyle too, not just a sport. They learned from Lydiard's visits to Japan to prioritize jogging. Seiko later called the jog his most important session. Volume is king, run persistently but easily, run often. The philosophy ideally suited Japanese cultural sensibilities. Sprinkle in Lydiard's periodization scheme, and you have the simple core of the Japanese program dating back 60 years. But in Japan, the New Zealand system for peaking took a twist. One based in trial and error, 
failure, and resurrection. In the late 1950s, Arthur Lydiard was a lab rat in his own training experiment, testing the limits of human endurance and his belief that there are champions everywhere. He began a 200-mile-week protocol. The cornerstone of his arduous week, a hard, hilly, 22-mile long-run loop through the Waiataru Range west of Auckland. The undulating course built strength, economy, and fortitude. Ultimately, Lydiard found the total weekly volume excessive, but the long run stayed. His champions ran it religiously. Shiguru So never ran the Auckland course. In December 1977, he might have wished he had. After bonking at Fukuoka, he took to heart Lydiard's prescient advice. If you give your body a certain exercise to do often enough, it becomes efficient at it. So relentlessly hammered his body for two months until the Beppu Marathon. There he ran 209.05, the first Japanese man under 210. Specific economy was critical. So ran four long sessions of 30K pace runs. These were long tempos at close to marathon pace. Reflecting on his Beppu success, So hypothesized that with a full training block, rather than one abridged by the return from Fukuoka, he could construct a perfect cycle with up to six long tempos of between 30K and 40K. Necessity is the mother of invention, and So's bonk, then rise from the ashes, inspired the modern Japanese fast long run. For four plus decades, it has been a weekly staple. The session has evolved into a progressive endeavor, the first half starting easier, before the back half cuts down to marathon pace or faster. Seiko and Nakamura further refined the practice in the 80s, adding a shorter but still substantial tempo run of 20K at or slightly faster than marathon pace. Seiko covered the distance in just over an hour. Exercise physiologists soon found this workout a highly effective way to improve lactate threshold in addition to the already understood specific economy benefits thus targeting two key parameters for improving marathon performance in a single session. The Japanese didn't invent the long tempo. Lydiard's New Zealanders and Bill Squire's Greater Boston Track Club practiced their own variations, but they did refine it and stay true to it for decades. Many American marathoners strayed from this workout in favor of hard, short interval sessions. Japanese coach and Lydiard disciple Nabi Hashizumi delineates the U.S.-Japanese contrast of the late 80s, 90s, and early 2000s by citing the example of Dave Morris. Morris trained with a Japanese corporate team before blasting a 209 PR at Chicago 1999. Disenchanted with the monotony and fatigue of the Japanese system, Morris returned to traditional American distance training of the era, defaulting to the sessions he enjoyed most like fast 400 repeats. He never raced as fast again. And in 2000, American marathoning ebbed to an all-time low. Rod DeHaven was our only Olympian. He finished a disappointing 69th. The up-tempo long run isn't without peril. It's a marathon-specific session, but highly challenging and requiring careful execution. The Japanese risk leaving their fitness and training instead of building it for race day. Fast long runs teeter delicately on the edge of a high-mileage precipice. Press just too much, and into the abyss falls the overtrained runner. An athlete's ego makes proper realization difficult. Run hard but controlled. Squeeze but without something to prove. Set aside ego. 
maintain discipline, improve fitness. Don't simply express fitness or worse, degrade it. Even Japanese record holder 204 man Kenjo Suzuki struggles with this delicate dance. Like a real-life Quentin Cassidy from John L. Parker's fictional cult classic Once a Runner, Suzuki buries himself in dedication to his pursuits. Suzuki's coach acts like a life vest, constantly keeping him afloat in the choppy waters of high volume where Suzuki might drown if left to his own devices. If nobody stops him, he'll lose himself in the run, Coach Mishiro observes. Kinjo coolly responds, Maybe it's just because I simply love to run, before adding, the only thing in which I can lose myself, and that thing that shines out above all else, is running. The So Seiko Suzuki long tempo tradition blossoms in Japan's disciplined communal structure. The East Africans, similar in their industriousness, spirituality, and understanding of internal running metrics, have adopted the fast long run session as well. Patrick Sang's training group, featuring Elliot Kipchoge, typically alternates between 30K and 40K each Thursday. Start slow, build into tempo, close strong. And the long tempo is experienced in American resurgence as well. Bob Larson, longtime coach at UCLA, taught it to his club runners in the late 70s, then built Meb Kofleski's altitude training on the long tempo foundation. The top American finishers at Boston 2023 Emma Bates and Scott Fobble, both under the guidance of Coach Joe Bosshard, shared on Strava multiple 20-plus mile long runs at around 90% of marathon pace. The high mileage system with long tempos isn't the only road to elite marathon success. For example, Aussie Steve Monaghetti, featured on the global stage with a Bill Dellinger-esque hard easy system of hard sessions on Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday, and an easy Sunday long run. But the system does provide a training-based roadmap for explaining the chasm between Japanese and American marathon depth in recent decades. Our milers are back. Our 5K and 10K runners are again competitive at the biggest meets. In each event, the Japanese lag far behind. We know their training formula for 26.2 miles. The quest now is applying the lessons of each of the great marathoning nations and recreating even a fraction of distance running's cultural significance in Japan, the running culture the United States had during its boom years four and five decades ago. We'll take a broader and deeper look inside American culture in our next installment of our Road to LA 84 series as we relive the pop culture, music, film, and sport of 40 years ago that provided the backdrop for the summer games in California, the world's pop culture capital. We look forward to sharing with you part four of the road to Los Angeles 1984, right here on Seconds Flat.